David Rig Griffin has just published his latest book on 9-11, Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. Because this time, the, the push from 9-11 is really to create a, a universal empire. In other words, that we would be in complete control of the planet. Well, that's a, that's a new thing. Also, Michael Shanahan, author of God's Wasps and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. What this has led some researchers in Thailand to explore is whether you can plant fig seeds to recuperate mining sites that have been totally scarred up in areas that were once uh, very rich forests. And so they're using uh, the, the fig trees there to break up the, the very hard compacted earth, um, get their roots in, start developing soil, which will then allow other plants to follow along. It's time for Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Stay with us. Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. You know, I mean, Trump is just beyond belief. He has to be replaced. He just, he, he's impossible in all sorts of ways. I mean, he's, he's, he's mentally ill, but part of the push has been to uh, get uh, Trump out of there, so all of this stuff about collusion with uh, Russia, most of that has very little uh, real evidence for it. The push is to get him out so the neocons can get back in uh, power. And uh, getting Pence in the, in the White House, in the Oval Office, that will be essentially putting the uh, neocons uh, back in power. David Ray Griffin was on Progressive Spirit last year discussing his book, Unprecedented, Can Civilization Survive the CO2 Crisis? It is likely one of the most clear books about the science of climate change and the prospects for human beings and all of life and the choices we have before us. Today, we discuss his latest book, just released, entitled Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. Here's the real deal we are facing huge ecological crises, not only for the human species, but for the planet itself. And to make things worse, the maniacs are in control. The neocons, Professor Griffin's book, is about the continuing legacy of the neocons in ruining America and the world. We're in trouble. Does that mean we're without hope? No, two things might save us the courage to learn and tell the truth and fig trees truth and figs the truth about the way things are and the regenerative power of figs people have said that figs are keystone resources and if you remove figs from a, an ecosystem like the Amazon rainforest for example then so many other things would disappear so we need, I think we need to think a bit more carefully about what it is we're trying to save and what it is we're willing to say goodbye to. I also speak today with biologist Mike Shanahan, who's devoted his career to fig trees. In his book, God's Wasps and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees, he writes about the amazing fig, its 80 million year history as a keystone species. We talk figs from both a scientific point of view and a spiritual point of view. Dr. Shanahan will be coming up in the second half of the show. My first guest is on the phone with me from Santa Barbara, California. Welcome, David Ray Griffin, to Progressive Spirit. Glad to be with you, John. Tell me, uh, Professor Griffin, how many books have you written on 9-11, and, and what's new about this one, and, and what's its focus? <laughs> well, it's, it's, I guess this, is, this may be my 12th uh, book. It's sort of obscene, but I think, it's, I think that's what it is. And uh, 
the other books really focused on 9-11 itself, that is, the, uh, all the different kinds of evidence that show the official story is false. Of all those other books, the, the one called The New Pearl Harbor Revisited is the one that gives the fullest account of all the different kinds of, of evidence. The present book is attempt to get attention to the evidence by pointing out how disastrous the you know 9/11 attacks have been. So the first two thirds of the book deals with all of those different things. The most crucial recently, of course, is the crisis in Syria. Now, you would say, well, Bush and Cheney didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, that was Hillary's job. Well, yeah, but they got it started, and she took it over. And this book is really a book about against the neocons. And uh, Hillary had become a full-out neocon by the time she was running for office. She was more publicly uh, associated with Libya, where she was crowing about having killed the dictator there and, you know, laughing. And she thought that was great fun. Her reputation with regard to Syria hasn't spread as far, although there was a New York Times front page story that pretty much uh, laid it out, her involvement both in Syria and, and Libya. And so I deal with all, all sorts of different things, the, uh, the development of Islamophobia, the uh, crisis in uh, Europe with the uh, refugees, millions of refugees coming into uh, Europe and so on. Then the last part of the book uh, deals with uh, the 9-11 as such. So in a sense, it was like, it's like the previous books, but this one is unique in that it focused strictly on miracles. It shows that uh, every dimension of the 9-11 day, that is the downing of the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, and World Trade Center 7, and the uh, Pentagon, how all of those, every one of those involved uh, miracles. So when people say, oh, come on, 9-11 people, you, you believe ridiculous things. Well, none of them would go on record saying, I believe in miracles. They just ignore the fact that these buildings couldn't, come down, couldn't have come down and uh, the Pentagon could not have been attacked the way it was attacked um, without miracles. So my hope is that people would see the, the two things. All the things that have gone wrong, have, how, how 9-11 has ruined the, uh, America and the world. So with regard to America in particular, the, the shredding of the uh, Constitution. Now, a lot of that was done under uh, Obama, but he was carrying out what Cheney had started. My hope was to get that. Some people would say, okay, well, you know, maybe we need to take that seriously, that it was not just uh, the attack on Iraq that has caused a lot of problems, but it was a much broader uh, effect of, uh, of our response to, to 9-11. And then to actually look at the evidence and see it's completely unbelievable. Nobody uh, with any intelligence, nobody with the slightest knowledge of uh, physics and chemistry uh, could believe the official story. Professor David Ray Griffin is my guest. He's on the phone with me talking about the book is just out, uh, Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. Now, my show, I get a lot of, uh, it's it's pretty much a leftist show. I'm there with the anti-war movement. I talk to my friends about 9-11, and they say, yeah, we agree about uh, the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War and, and the uh, Patriot Act, so-called, and all of these kinds of things, but they won't go. They think that 9-11 is a distraction uh, from the cause. But your book says, no, we, we got to understand, really, uh, what happens with 9-11 if we're going to have a resistance to these other things that has been the result of 9-11. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And uh, 
you know, it's not. Also, it's also uh, not just a, a leftist thing. Uh, uh, several of the leading critics of the, the official story about 9/11 are on the right, like Paul Craig uh, Roberts, mm-hmm. whom I quote uh, a lot in this book. What they've done, though, the CIA, the Pentagon, the White House, the Bush-Cheney White House, been very effective in convincing people they should not even look at the evidence. You know, people ridiculing Trump now, rightly so, for just ignoring uh, the evidence and making up his own stories. Well, that's just what happened on 9-11, Bush and primarily Cheney created this story and is just a, a ludicrous story as i say it's full of miracles but you can't get people even to look at it they'll just say oh that 9-11 crap i'm not going to read that that's just nonsense and so on so they've been very effective in preventing people from even looking at the evidence for example your, your own experience i mean you've written now 12 books so you've been doing this for some time presenting your scholarship to the scholarly community what's the reaction been has it gotten any better um is it, is it even being more dismissed as as conspiracy theorist yeah it's just pretty much uh, dismissed in you know academic circles oh you're one of those guys not not entirely um We've got an organization called uh, Religious Leaders for 9-11 Truth. And so quite a large uh, number of people have, have signed on to the petition, uh, just as there are you know, scientists for 9-11 Truth, firefighters for 9-11 Truth. The biggest one, of course, is uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Several thousand uh, professional members of the American Institute of Architecture have written very strong things about it's just, you know, it's just impossible. The official story is just impossible, but nobody will read it. Yeah. I'm wondering, though, if there may be some new movement, especially with AE 911 Truth and and, uh, and their diligence in bringing the science to it, that this may be uh, a point in which a number of people who have influence can, can ultimately turn the tide. Do you think that's possible? Well, I think it's possible, and of course, this book is my uh, <laughs> probably final attempt uh, to do that. I got a number of really, really first-rate uh, and and um, sort of mainstream uh, commentators uh, who wrote uh, blurbs. I think I have about 20 of them in, at the front of the book. So if people would just look at those and say, well, golly, if all those people think there's something wrong with the official story, who am I to say they're wrong because they've studied the evidence and I haven't? Somehow it doesn't seem to go that way, though. The fact that you studied the evidence shows that something's wrong with your mind. David Ray Griffin is my guest. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, he's the author of uh, a number of books on 9-11. Before that, his whole career uh, was on uh, religion and theology. Uh, The latest book is Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. You had mentioned about Hillary Clinton uh, being a neocon. I think in the book at some point you wrote she was a neocon light. But the idea that... um, these toppling of these various regimes is something that has been planned um, early on, way before 9-11, but Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, um, uh, Libya, uh, Iran to come. Uh, so this is really following a, a plan of the neocons for uh, 20 years or more. Well, yeah, I mean, the uh, Kinter has a great book called Overthrow, and he's given the history of how many uh, countries uh, American government has overthrown all over the past century. And so this is not a new thing, but it's a new, uh, much uh, stronger push. Because this time, the, the push from 9-11 is really to create a, a universal empire. In other words, that we would be in complete control of the planet. Well, that's a, that's a new thing. Uh, you know, lots of people in the past um, had an image and have a, had a vision, had a, 
had a hope that, gee, that might happen someday because, you know, we're the good country, that we're the best country in the world, and so it'd be great if everybody uh, were as great as we were. Now, uh, most people realize the United States is not so great, not so moral, and yet uh, the push goes on. What's going on with Trump is a kind of ambivalent thing for people who are uh, concerned about this. You know, I mean, Trump is just beyond belief. He has to be replaced. He just, he, he's impossible in all sorts of ways. I mean, he's, he's, he's mentally ill. But part of the push has been to uh, get uh, Trump out of there. So all of this stuff about collusion with uh, Russia, most of that has very little uh, real evidence for it. The push is to get him out so the neocons can get back in uh, power. And uh, getting Pence in the, in the White House, in the Oval Office, that will be essentially putting the uh, neocons uh, back in power. So whether it's Pence or Hillary, there's a big push to, to get them back in power so they can complete their attempt to um, you know, run, the, run the table and get every country. You know, and it's, it's less and less uh, likely. You've got more and more countries now moving away from the United States. But that hasn't kept the neocons uh, from wanting to keep trying that. One of the things you talked about, uh, a number of chapters on, of events of things that have happened since 9-11, and one of those really about Obama and the drones. And that might be the most distinctive worst thing about the Obama presidency. Is that right? The, of the drone attacks of really which is... What other word could we say? It's assassination. It's it's murder, killing terrorists, uh, and put that in scare quotes, rather than trying to capture them. Of of course, uh, you know the ways of Democrats and 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 lots of independents uh, love Obama because of his many many virtues, and certainly putting him up aside uh, Trump uh, makes it even clearer. Uh, what a what a great president he was by comparison with Trump, and just that he, you know, he's a human being and he he's a great speaker. He does not embarrass us when he goes out in public. He even had he, a favorite philosopher, Reinhold Niebuhr. I mean, he was an articulate guy. <laughs> that's right. So I'm very, I don't like the fact that I have to say some really negative things about. Obama, but yes, the drones is at least arguably the worst because it is literally just a murder. So we have a, we have the president of the United States going around the world um, murdering people. You know, none of us who like Obama like to think about that, but we must think about it. He was not a neocon, and he did not support Hillary's neocon fantasies um, with any enthusiasm, but he went ahead and supported them. So um, he supported the attempt to uh, overthrow Assad, uh, which is, you know, one of the main reasons for the ruin of Europe with so many uh, refugees. But just the sheer number of people who've been killed in uh, Syria and Libya as well as Iraq and Afghanistan. The other thing about Obama, the other, <laughs> other worst thing, is the undermining, the shredding of the Constitution. Now, most people don't know about that yet. The effects have not become visible. I do mention in there that if, you know, with Trump as president, he was all, the, the Constitution was all sufficiently shredded that he could pretty much do whatever he wanted to do. Uh, fortunately, Trump isn't smart enough, <laughs> to, I guess, to take advantage of that. Uh, we don't know who will come next. Certainly Pence is a lot uh, smarter and a lot cagier and presents a, a much more uh, you know, pleasant uh, appearance of being a sober, serious guy. 
but we don't know. So when one reads that chapter, um, I think people will be shocked to see how much of the Bill of Rights has been shredded. That was a huge disappointment uh, with Obama coming into office of passing on the continual powers of the executive uh, onto the next executive. Yeah, that's that's exactly my point. Um, Obama has so many virtues, and we like him for so many reasons, many of us do. But he did almost everything halfway. So he would he would make the right noises. He would make the beautiful speeches. But then he wouldn't take really strong action, like uh, on climate change. It had become clear that we simply had to get rid of fossil fuels and pair those back as fast as possible. And then Obama kept saying all of the above, all of the above, and particularly his support for uh, fracking. Whereas, um, you know, getting rid of coal and replace it with uh, natural gas, well, as I point out in my, my other book, Unprecedented, natural gas is about as destructive as coal, and the fracking is uh, enormously destructive uh, in all sorts of ways. And he gave 100% support uh, for fracking. My guest is David Ray Griffin. Uh, he's on the phone with me from California, uh, author of Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. Your book, uh, I, I've finished it, and I thought, wow. Uh, at one point you say uh, it, it's too late, um, that we've kind of passed a point of, of no return, the ecological crises uh, coming upon us, and as well as just the human-to-human reactions of this. Do you, do you think that's the case? Is there, is there a possibility well, for us to come something different? On, on, on climate, we, we have passed the point where we could have prevented uh, any serious uh, destruction of the planet. But we're still at the point where we could, could save, um, you know, save the human race. It's, it's that serious. With Trump in power, reversing even the fairly uh, mild things that Obama did on this purpose, we now have the intelligence and the expertise uh, to quit doing that and and become a leader in saving the planet, saving you know not saving the planet but saving uh, humanity and and more generally save uh, life. We're in a very difficult situation. You know, there's one uh, neocon who knows the truth more than any, and he's still living. And that's Dick Cheney. Um, in fact, a major part of your book really is is about his role uh, in all of this. Do, have you ever met Dick Cheney? Is there any chance that he might have a come to Jesus moment? <laughs> I have not met him, and it would be, uh, you know, anything's possible. But I'm I'm not going to count on it, you know. And he he and he and Bush are both. Uh, card-carrying methods. And I mentioned that because the school where I taught, School of Theology at Claremont, Claremont School of Theology, is um, primarily a Methodist uh, school. There have been a particularly, you know, great embarrassment, embarrassment to, to us. You know, you are a theologian, and I and, uh, have to say how, how proud I am as a religious person that, uh, that you are the one uh, has, that has really put your scholarly efforts toward this. And, and I think it's obviously because of your theological training uh, that has allowed you to sift through a lot of the lies of the state uh, that, uh, that came coming at us. In fact, I want to read a quote from you. You wrote The Big Lie. You said, the hope behind this book is that journalists, politicians, and other people seeing that the neocon mania for empire has been leading America and the world in general to hell, will realize that concerns about reputation are trivial by comparison, and we may be emboldened to stop the madness by exposing the big lie for what it is. And, and I saw that as a call to not be scared off by the labels of conspiracy theorists or, or all of that kind of stuff, all of the threats to our reputation or job, but to really embrace the truth as it comes to us. Yeah, I think I'm glad you quoted that statement. I think it's uh, the most important statement in the, in the book to say this is what it's about. But I should say now, uh, you know, for a while uh, there was no doubt about that I was the leader of the uh, 
the 9-11 Truth Movement. But now the leadership has been become so uh, widespread and different fields. So you've got uh, Richard Gage is, is currently, you know, he, he has really taken over the, the leadership of the 9-11 movement, and, uh, and rightly so. But also the, uh, the physicists, the uh, uh, chemists like uh, Niels Herrett, there's a lot of expertise in this movement. Uh, believe it or not, I, <laughs> there's another book that will be coming out pretty soon, within a year probably, that is based on a program that a colleague and I started called Consensus 9-11. And so we got about 20 experts from various fields to see what consensus we could have about which parts of the official story are false. I was motivated to do this because I would hear stories about journalists who, who just wished to put down the movement. They would quote somebody who is, you know, not a scientist, not a philosopher, not, you know, just a guy who calls himself a member of the 9-11 movement. And he makes some really stupid comments. And then so the journalists will quote such people and say, that's what 9-11 truthers believe. So we tried to get a that would say, no, here is what 9-11 uh, skeptics believe. We got to the point where we'd have to get a certain percentage of agreement among our group uh, to say, okay, uh, this, is, this is consensus. And so... Uh, that will show uh, further how widespread this movement is and uh, how sound how sound the scholarship is. And for those of us in the movement, it's just, you know, it's so ludicrous, the, the official story. And we've proven it time and time again, and the evidence is so strong, and the, the, the reputation of... Uh, dozens, actually hundreds of people, scholars of various fields, have agreement on this. But probably nobody listening to this broadcast has ne ever heard of 9-11 consensus or heard of any of these things uh, to show that the official story is a, a lie. Now, one thing, one of the new things in the, the book is about Cheney. According to the official story, he was in his office, and then he was taken downstairs by the Secret Service, but he didn't really get into the the room down there there till uh, I think it was 9:58. Well, the fact was that Cheney went down there very early. The mainstream press pretty much ignored all the evidence, including one member of the cabinet, who said, "No, no, Dick Cheney was down there." certainly before 9.30, and certainly before the Pentagon was struck. But the, the reason for the lie about this was that uh, that way they could claim that Cheney could not have been responsible for the attack on the uh, Pentagon. Well, in the book, I've, I've uh, summarized uh, new evidence that showed that there were at least three major statements by members of the Secret Service who were there and involved in 9-11 who said that Cheney was into the, the room before 9-30. I mean, this is, a, this is a blockbuster story, potentially, for the press to say, his story about 9-11 that shows that Cheney lied and the 9-11 Commission lied about where Cheney was. And this has been this has been available for over a year, and you not have a single mainstream report about this. Why do you suppose that is? <laughs> now that's another show in itself. Uh, well, it all goes back to to empire. These are all things to um, support America's uh, dominance of the world and therefore of its natural resources.
I'm I'm also a member of religious leaders for 9/11 Truth, and and part of my reason was I just felt we've been blaming the wrong people for a horrendous crime, and if there's anything that is a, a sin throughout all of our religious traditions, uh, it certainly is bearing false witness. You know, it's the greatest false flag uh, operation ever, both in terms of the size of the operation and in the size of the uh, effects. So that's another way of describing what my book is about, uh, what have been the effects of the uh, 9-11 false flag attacks. And David Ray Griffin uh, has been my guest, and, and his book is, is just out, uh, just off the press, uh, Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. When we come back, Dr. Michael Shanahan from the U.K., his book is called God's Wasps and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Stay with us. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. We turn now to the topic of figs. This is from Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river and the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is none other than the amazing fig tree. Religious and spiritual traditions all feature the fig tree. As go the figs, so goes humanity. Biologist Mike Shanahan is on Skype with me from the UK to talk about his book, God's Wasps and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. Welcome to Progressive Spirit. Thanks a lot, John. It's great to be here. Well, tell us first about uh, your research in Bernal. What, what got you interested in figs and, and what were you looking for in your research? Well, it was a bit of an accident, really. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, planning to go and study figs at all. I was meant to be going to Indonesia to study the wild bird trade and find out what was going on there. But the project fell through and my supervisor felt bad because uh, he knew that I'd uh, been really excited about going to Indonesia. So he put in a call to some of his colleagues and he's a fig biologist himself. Um, and somebody replied and it was Rhett Harrison and a researcher doing his doctorate in, in Borneo. And he said he could host me for a few weeks. So I went there, spent about uh, six or eight weeks in the forest uh, the national park I was in had about 80 different species of fig trees and they were hugely varied in how they produced their figs and what color their figs were and, and how high in the canopy they were. And uh, all of these things meant that different kinds of animals were benefiting from figs in different ways. And it turns out that a huge proportion of the wildlife there, the birds and the mammals were, were eating figs and surviving because of that. Well, let's talk about some basics on, on figs. How many species of figs are there in the world, and, uh, and how long do they live, and where do they live, and, uh, and, and what lives off of them? Well, we still don't know exactly how many species there are. There's probably around 750, maybe as many as 800 different species, which are distinct from the, the one we commonly eat, which is the edible fig. And these fig species are found all throughout the tropics and the subtropics. There are about 100 species in Africa, uh, about 145 in the Americas. And the majority of them are in this big swathe that goes from India all the way across to Australia and the Pacific. And there's maybe five or 600 of the, the different, different species there. And what eats them? Well, everything eats them. If you're an animal in a, in a rainforest or any other part of the tropics and there are figs nearby, and if you're a fruit-eating animal, you're, you're going to eat figs for sure. And lots of things that don't ordinarily eat fruit even have been recorded eating figs. 
And one of the parts of my research was to sort of assess how important figs are globally. And I found that the, there are records for more than 1,200 different species of birds and mammals eating figs around the world. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Mike Shanahan. He's the author of the book, God, Wasps, and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. Uh, Stranglers, uh, this was fascinating to read your book about how these basically take over a host's tree and really start from the top down. Can can you describe uh, how a strangler grows? Well, most trees start from the ground and grow upwards uh, when a seed lands in on the earth and uh, it can be a struggle in a rainforest to get enough light to grow so the strangler figs have found a, a way to take a shortcut really and what happens is they uh, will be dispersed by birds or bats or monkeys that are high up in the canopy and when these animals poop out a fig seed it lands on a tree and if it's the right kind of tree at the right kind of height then it can get established and it opens up a couple of leaves and starts sending roots down. And the roots course down the host tree and uh, they start to thicken and they start to merge with each other and uh, split apart and merge again until they've wrapped a whole basket work around the, the host tree. And eventually they reach the ground and they start to suck up nutrients and other things that the fig needs. But it's also already very high up in the canopy, so it gets all of the light it needs for vigorous growth. And what can ultimately happen is that the host tree can can die and can rot away and you have a hollow core left behind. So this uh, structure, which has grown from the top down, eventually becomes freestanding and you can step inside it and look up and see a whole column of hollow uh, air where, where the, uh, the, the host tree was and has now gone. Uh, that was just amazing. In fact, you had some illustrations in there of of homes uh, that was that were built in the fig tree, human homes built in the fig tree itself. Yes, well, there's a very, a very famous hotel that was built in a fig tree in Kenya. And uh, it was in that hotel that Queen Elizabeth II, our current queen, was sleeping when she was still just Princess Elizabeth. And in the nighttime, her father died in his sleep in England. So she had gone up the tree as a princess and she came down as a queen and was the new uh, the ruler of the whole British Empire. So she was asleep in a fig tree when all of that happened. <laughs> I'm speaking with Mike Shanahan. He's the author of God's Wasps and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. I was fascinated uh, by your account of the relationship between the fig and the fig wasp and, 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 uh, and the mechanics of how that works. Could you talk about how the fig wasps and the figs do their dance? Sure. Well, the, the first thing to know is that the fig isn't really a fruit. It's actually a hollow ball of flowers, and those flowers never really see the light of day. They are exclusively, or they're supposed to be exclusively for the pollinators of fig species. And each of the 750 or so fig species has its own specific wasps that do this job, sometimes one species, sometimes one or two species. And the, the wasps can only breed inside the, the flowers of their partner figs. So there's a very tight relationship. This relationship has, has existed for at least 80 million years. It it's predates the extinction of the last of the giant dinosaurs and has been very uh, important around the world in, in shaping different plants and animal communities all around the world. Because uh, the way that the biology works is that the, uh, the wasps go and pollinate inside the fig flowers, but also lay their eggs in some of the flowers. And the future, the next generation of wasps that are born inside the figs will pick up some pollen and then fly out and find uh, another fig tree in which to lay their own eggs. And because the wasps only last for a couple of days before they die, that means that you have to have always some receptive figs of a given species and always, therefore, some ripe figs of a given species. So it means that figs are available all year round for fruits eating birds, and uh, whereas most other fruit are available at just a very short period of time. So figs are really sustaining a huge amount of wildlife across the tropics. And by doing that, they're sustaining all of the different plant species that those um, many different animals disperse the seeds of. And uh, one of those species is human beings at the end of the at the end of the day. Uh, you write about our human ancestor four million years ago, a fig eater, the um, Artipithecus ramidus, or Arti, uh, and humans and figs go way back, right? Yes, I mean, if we had a time machine, I'm sure that we could prove that we've been eating figs for <laughs> as long as we've been 
basically in the trees. So thousands, of, uh, sorry, millions of years before the first upright humans walked, our ancestors would have been eating figs because they were there and because they an extremely important source of nutrition and uh, very easy to eat. Just as today, so many different animals eat figs, back in our evolutionary past, our ancestors would certainly have done so. See this reflected in um, cultures around the world in which people still eat figs, both the, the, the common farmed fig, but also lots of wild fig varieties. And also the way that figs are very important in human stories and culture and religion all across the world. Yeah, I want to turn there now. Uh, religion, poetry, mythology, uh, figs are present in, in so many religious traditions. In your exploration, what did you find? How many uh, human cultures have you found with religious mythology associated with figs? Well, I've lost count, really. Um, all of the major religions have got some stories relating to fig trees. So there you have Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Jainism, Buddhism, Islam. And then on top of that, all across the world in the tropics, you have uh, different cultural beliefs and practices, smaller scale religions, um, people's uh, systems of passing um, on land, marking out territory, and uh, various gods and goddesses stories uh, connected with fig trees. And this is all across Africa, across the Pacific, into Japan, into China. Um, in uh, Central America, in Brazil. So all around the world, you can find these stories. And they range from things like uh, creation myths, in which uh, a fig tree features. And this is uh, from Adam and Eve to the, the Kikuyu in Kenya, to uh, different various different peoples in Indonesia and Asia. Fig trees, uh, abodes of spirits or places where the gods come and where you can pray to the gods. And uh, even uh, maybe even taking on the role of temple in some faiths as well. The Egyptian god, is it Hathor? Uh, and her relationship with the sycamore fig, that it was a, really a gateway to heaven. That's right. Originally, the pharaohs believed that when they died, their souls would uh, travel to the, to the far eastern horizon in the desert. And there they would find this uh, celestial fig tree of a kind called Ficus sycamorus. And from the tree would emerge Hathor, the goddess, who, uh, who is very heavily associated with this, this tree. And she would offer the pharaoh's soul food and drink and say, you know, you're welcome into heaven and, and come and feast forever on these figs. And then later, people, general, the general populace of Egypt began to also believe that this was the route into heaven as well. It wasn't just for the pharaohs. And this species of fig, Ficus sycamorus, right? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, it, back in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophet Amos in the Bible, uh, 8th century BCE, uh, he calls himself a dresser of sycamore trees. What was Amos doing when he was dressing a sycamore tree? Well, some different translations of, of that particular part of the story um, don't use the word dresser, they use the word gasher or cutter. The reason for this is that in Egypt and in the surrounding territories, the pollinator wasp for Ficus sycamorus is absent. And it may be that it was never there or it may be that it went extinct. So uh, this should have been uh, a death sentence for this species because without a pollinator it can't reproduce. But somewhere other, along the line, thousands of years ago, somebody worked out that if you cut each of these figs with a very sharp knife, um, the gas that goes into them will, will trick them into ripening. So this is what was happening all those years ago in the time of the pharaohs. They were eating figs because they had managed somehow to trick the trees into thinking that they had been pollinated and therefore that uh, the, the plant would pump in the sugars and other things that make the figs taste nice. God, Wasps, and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees is the book. Mike Shanahan is my guest. Fig trees have provided for human beings more than just fruit, uh, including medicine. Um, uh, what are there some other uses uh, for fig trees that uh, humans have used? Well, in Uganda... Uh, people have taken the bark of a fig tree and they slowly peel it off the tree and then beat it with hammers for a long, long time until it is a very thin, um, pliable material that is used. To, it's called bark cloth and it's used to make uh, clothes. It used to be 
only reserved for the kings and queens and members of the royal household. But it's now there's a bit of a resurgence in this material because it's um, it's something that can be grown on trees on people's farms. And if you take the bark off, the tree will uh, produce more bark. Uh, So now you can find it in high fashion and in uh, lampshades and things like this and even in aerospace materials. So that's a that's a nice example of something we've got from uh, figs. The other thing is that all fig trees produce latex. They produce a sticky white latex when you pull off their leaves or cut their bark. And and this gummy material has been used for a whole range of different things. It was used in ancient Greece to curdle milk to make cheese. Uh, it was used around the world by different peoples to uh, as a, a kind of bird lime. So people would smear it on bar- bark of trees so that uh, any birds li- landing on the branch they could catch. So something that really was part of people's day-to-day survival for a long time. Uh, in what is now Mexico, people used to use fig bark to make paper. been very useful there as well. And there are a whole load of different medicines that people use around the world derived from the bark or from the roots or from the leaves of different fig species. Well, let's talk frankly. What's uh, the dangers uh, we're facing uh, with climate change? And, and what do you see uh, happening now and, and how fig trees perhaps play a role? Uh, maybe put it this way. What, what changes have happened in Borneo uh, in the national park since you were doing your research there in the 90s uh, and today? Well, sadly, most of the larger animals are now completely gone from that national park. And when I was there, Already the the wildlife had been quite badly hit by hunting and by the fact that most of the surrounding area was no longer a rainforest that was farms or uh, other kinds of land uses. Um, But at least when I was there, I could I could find monkeys and I could find these exquisite, very large birds called hornbills. Um, But researchers have gone back since then and have uh, gone and looked at the fig trees that I was looking at and have only managed to find very small uh, birds. So what that means for the fig trees and for the strangler figs in particular is that they're not getting the seed dispersal service that they used to get from these bigger animals that can fly long distances or swing through the trees for for a long distance and spread the seeds over a large area. And if um, the figs are suffering, then of course, so too are all of the other species that those animals disperse. So we're seeing immediately a a change in the structure of the forest there, um, and that will be replicated in forests all over the the tropics, I believe. Um, And at the same time, the climate is changing, the temperature is increasing, and we don't know what this actually means for the relationship between figs and their wasps. Uh, They've been around for 80 million years, and they've survived uh, warmer periods, but they haven't necessarily survived periods that have warmed as quickly as this. So if you take fig wasps and take them in a lab and increase the temperature, very quickly their lifespan declines, and they struggle to, to they would struggle in, na- in nature to find figs in which to lay their eggs. So we don't know what's going to happen in the real world uh, as the temperatures increase, but it could be some bad news for this particular relationship that uh, affects so many other things in forests. Yeah, you wrote in your book, and, and other biologists certainly have said similar things, that we really are in the midst of a grand experiment uh, uh, with Earth itself. Yes, and uh, it's like if you imagine a bridge, the keystone is the stone that keeps everything else in place. And if you lose it, the whole thing comes tumbling down. And people have said that figs are keystone resources. And if you remove figs from a, uh, an ecosystem like the Amazon rainforest, for example, then so many other things would disappear. So we need, I think we need to think a bit more carefully about what it is we're trying to save and what it is we're willing to say goodbye to. You, you know, in your book, near the end, you talk about it, that it's important for scientists and religious people uh, to work together. And in, in, in fact, in your last chapter, you discuss the marriage of two fig trees in India as a ritual to protect figs. And I'm um, and I, I want to go with that a little bit, because there are parts of um, religious traditions that talk about fig. For, for example, uh, again, in the Hebrew scriptures, Micah, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. No one will make them afraid. I mean, that's an image of connection, the future, the uh, glorious, hopeful future. Uh, the, the trees, uh, the leaves are the healing for the nations. And so there's a, a really an aspect, what I hear you writing in your book, of encouraging us to think about figs uh, at the biological part, as well as figs from a... Um, a religious uh, and mythological and poetical part. 
capture our heart as well as our mind. Is that right? That's right. And, and part of what I read, wrote this book for is really to uh, to emphasize that we're not apart from nature. We are part of it. And that all of these wondrous things that we can see in a rainforest or that we can see even in a garden are uh, actually connected to us through um, through the decisions we make and the, the way we live in the world. We will uh, we will experience positive or, or negative repercussions because of that. Here you talk about how figs can really have a role in, in restoration, uh, the place where after a devastation, new life can appear. Uh, you talk about Papua New Guinea's uh, Long Island. Well, Long Island was a, a volcano that erupted in about 1660, so quite a long time ago. But when, we know that when it did, it destroyed everything on the island and covered it in uh, ash that was tens of meters thick, and nothing there survived. And when we went there in 1999, we found that the forest was was in a good state of recovery. It wasn't fully recovered compared to the mainland. One in 10 of all the plant species there were fig species. And Long Island, despite the name, is actually shaped like a ring, like a donut. And uh, in the center of it is a lake that filled in where the crater was. And within the lake, there is a new island that appeared and only became permanent in 1974. And when we visited that little island in the middle, which is basically black lava. We found not much in the way of animal life, just some ants and some spiders. But there were uh, some weedy grasses and, and sedges and other little plants. But also there were seven different species of figs on this little outcrop of lava in the middle of a crater lake of a, of a volcano. And it demonstrated to us that the, the fig trees are really capable of germinating and establishing themselves even on bare rock and even in the most extreme degraded of environments. And you can also see this if you go to any city in Asia and you'll find their strangler figs growing out of the side of buildings or uh, germinating in cracks in the sidewalk. What this has led some researchers in Thailand to explore is whether you can plant fig seeds to recuperate mining sites that have been totally scarred up in areas that were once uh, very rich forests. And so they're using uh, the, the fig trees there to break up the, the very hard compacted earth, um, get their roots in, start developing soil, which will then allow other plants to follow along. My guest has been uh, Mike Shanahan. He's the author of God's Wasps and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. You can also catch his blog at underthebanyan.wordpress.com. Mike, uh, thank you so much uh, for this book and for your work here and for being with me today. Thanks, John. It was a nice, nice chat. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is my website. Catch Progressive Spirit weekly on several radio stations and via podcast. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Schuck. Be well.